This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. I'm your host, Aggie Tupou. We'd like to acknowledge that Pacific Beat comes to you from the lands of the Bunurong and Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation. Hopefully, you had a great weekend. Well, you can expect on the show today military strongman Prabro Subuyanto may be a TikTok star for upcoming Indonesian elections, but could this spell bad things for West Papua? We're not confident with the Prabowo because he's involved a lot of things in West Papua. When he was general, he's involved many things and killing my people. A motion of no confidence against Vanuatu's Prime Minister, Shalo Salwai, and a global insurer says no to financing deep-sea mining. I mean, effectively, it's potentially a reputational risk because of the, the dangers involved in it, but it's also a financial risk. More on these stories shortly. I'm Aggie Dubow and this is Pacific Beat. Firstly, social media platform TikTok has turned former military strongman Prabowo Subianto into a lovable dancing grandpa, and now he's likely to become the next president of Indonesia. But there's fear his past, which is marred by human rights allegations, could spell bad things for West Papua. Carl Evans has more. With awkward dance moves and slick cartoons, Prabowo Subianto struck a chord with Indonesia's young voters on the social media platform TikTok. And now he's in pole position to become the country's next president following last week's election. In West Papua, journalist Victor Marbor says voting turnout was strong in the capital Jayapura despite calls for a boycott from the United Liberation Movement leader, Benny Wender. I don't know. I think in the municipality, in the Jayapura, people doesn't hear that. Similar to other parts of Indonesia, Mr Mambor says Prabowo was popular among young voters, many of whom weren't aware of human rights allegations which have marred his reputation in the past. When I make a, re- a report for the news outlet in uh, Washington, I, they, told me, they told to me they will choose. I asked them why you choose Prabowo, you will choose Prabowo, because Prabowo is funny for them. They don't know about the story. They don't know. But outside of Jayapura, Benny Wender says calls for a boycott were heard loud and clear. I think most of people are just stay home, you know. There is no trust. Only some people vote because of their working with the Indonesian government. Uh, civil servant, for example, and re- head of the regency and uh, people who are working with Indonesian governments. But ordinary people, most activists and our uh, people, most of them are they're not you know, involved. They just stay home. And some of them are destroying and they burn down and also publicly they're not going to vote. So, yeah, that's what I got update from the people in back home. For those that did vote, a traditional voting model called the knock-in system was employed in some remote areas. The system saw community members entrust their voting rights to tribal chiefs to elect candidates on their behalf. Mr Wender says he fears what Prabowo, a former military commander accused of human rights abuses in Papua and Timor-Leste, could mean for his people. We're not confident with the Prabowo because he's involved a lot of things in West Papua when he was General Kopasus and uh, he's involved 
many things and killing my people. Among allegations against Prabowo is the torture and kidnapping of political activists in 1998. He's long denied the allegations and nothing has been proven. If elected, he's vowed to protect West Papuans, even offering to grant amnesty for armed separatist groups who turn themselves in. But Kami Webb-Gannon, a Pacific decolonisation researcher at the University of Wollongong, can't see that happening. The independence movement is swelling in its ranks, is more determined than ever, has more international support than it's ever had due to the rise of social media and the incredible Indigenous and decolonisation networks, climate change networks that are growing around the world. And so there's a sense that that the hope for decolonisation is getting stronger amongst West Papuans. So there's nothing in it for West Papuans to, uh, uh, to agree to work with Proboa. No one will be committing to, to surrendering. From an economic standpoint, she says Proboa would likely take a developmental approach toward West Papua, but she worries it would benefit mainly Indonesian migrants, much like it did under Joko Widodo. One of his big projects was building the, uh, the Trans-Papua Highway. The road itself was not actually a benign project in that, so, you know, while it was supposed to be able to facilitate improved transport between the coast and the highlands and to open up communication, to open up transport, to um, deliver a better quality of life to people living in the highlands, what it actually meant was that the people who had the contract to build the road were primarily Indonesian. A lot of them also were part of the army and it meant the jobs that, that were opened up were extended to Indonesian migrants and it gave the army a greater presence in West Papua. And so what Praboa means is that this developmentalist approach will continue, but it will have a much harder a harder edge to it. Praboa, you know, he's got a long-standing history as a military man. He's a staunch nationalist and Muslim. Many West Papuans are Christian. Under Jokowi, there was a rising intolerance against minorities, against Chinese and Christians. All of this doesn't bode well for West Papuans. And that was Kami Webergenen, a Pacific decolonisation researcher at the University of Wollongong, ending that report. Pacific Beat. Now to Tonga, where its National Reserve Bank has distanced itself from a major drug bust, which took place on one of its properties where police seized close to 10 kilograms of methamphetamine. A senior staff member and his sister are awaiting trial, with police seizing $8 million worth of meth in the arrest. Reserve Bank Governor Tatafu Moyaki says the bank worked closely with the police in the latest drug bust. We want to assure the public that the security of uh, the premises, in particular our um, high security area, is not adversely affected. Additional measures are underway to safeguard the safety and protection of our high security area, our staff uh, and the tenants uh, of the property. We would like to assure further the banks, all the banks, uh, financial institutions and the public that our functions, our regulatory functions are unaffected. We want to put on record our commendation for the Tonga police uh, and the efficient and effective manner uh, under which they have conducted um, this uh, and by extension our thanks uh, to the public, the Tongan public and our communities for their understanding and support during this uh, challenging period. With the police um, uh, 
investigations in progress, we advise that this uh, brief statement is sufficient uh, for now. And that's the Tafu Moyaki, Governor of Tonga's National Reserve Bank. Hey, up next, news wrap with producer Mackenzie Smith. And make sure you hit our Facebook page, ABC Pacific. Give us your thoughts. We'd love to hear from you. News and Footy. Hosted by me, Sam Wax. And me, Tenerao Aruna. Each week, we'll bring you Pacific Islander stories from on and off the rugby league and rugby union field. We'll have plenty of special guests, tales from the past, tackle the big topics of today, and look forward to the next-gen Nisian footy stars. Nisian footy. Nisian footy. Monday afternoons at 4 o'clock PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Well, yes, it is that time where we head around the region uh, to see what is the latest in our headlines. And, of course, that is brought to you by our producer, Mackenzie Smith. With that, I say good morning. Morning, Aggie. Yeah, I'm good. Thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, we start off in the Cook Islands. Interesting, they've got a new Deputy Prime Minister. Yeah, the Cook Islands News reports Albert Nicholas was uh, appointed as as the new Deputy on Friday by Prime Minister Mark Brown. This comes after uh, Brown's previous deputy, Robert uh, Taipaito, uh, lost his seat due to a corruption conviction late last month. Um, so Taipaito and uh, his two co-accused were found guilty of taking $70,000 in public funds between April 2019 and March 2021. Uh, after that uh, conviction, the uh, minister resigned from Parliament. Mark Brown says Albert Nicholas will be charged with uh, driving economic growth in the Pa Enua or Outer Islands. Now, that's good to hear uh, with the new Deputy Prime Minister. But quickly, because you just wanted to know, was there any update, though, that you knew about uh, the previous Prime Minister with the convictions? Anything new? No, no, okay. I, um, I, I, I don't think um, we've, we've heard any more from that. Okay, no worries. Uh, we head to, this is, uh, I know it just happened recently, a large group of asylum seekers uh, found their way to Western Australia, uh, but they've now been taken to Nauru. What's the latest there? Yeah, so a, a total of 39 asylum seekers were, were found in, uh, by authorities on Friday in, in North Western Australia. Um, the, the, the men were then flown to an offshore detention centre in Nauru where they'll be processed. Uh, the, the group uh, claimed to be uh, from Pakistan, Bangladesh and India and they arrived in, in two groups by, by boat. They, they say they came from Indonesia before that. Uh, and it's ignited political debate in Australia where the opposition has accused the the government have been weak on on border protection. Mm, yeah, we'll keep our eyes and ears on that story. I know it will be uh, still developing. Uh, researchers, though, say the current system for categorising cyclones is insufficient. Why is that? Yeah, this was interesting. Uh, an article uh, published in the journal PNAS this month uh, found that the, the, the current safer Simpson scale uh, that was first introduced in the 1970s and, and which has five categories of, of cyclone, obviously used widely in the in the Pacific, isn't capturing the, the growing intensity of those storms. So a category five cyclone is, is anything 
um, 70 miles per second uh, or stronger. Um, uh, but the researchers say that due to uh, changes in, in global warming, many storms already um, far exceed this and may constitute a new hypothetical Category 6 cyclone. Uh, and, and they say that adopting this new Category 6 would help to show how climate change has uh, intensified those, those winds um, in tropical cyclones. Mm, that is a really good update. Thank you, Mackenzie, for bringing us uh, our news wrap this morning. Thanks so much. Hi, I'm Sayuli Salamasi Novonraiki, and I invite you to come with me to explore how our Pacific cultures have evolved with the changing times in a new show, Culture Compass. You'll meet people who are passionate about keeping traditions alive, passing them down to the next generation while adapting old ways to the present. Culture Compass, Tuesdays at 9am PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Welcome back to Pacific Beat. I'm your host, Aggie the Bowl. While a major global insurer and reinsurer looks to have become the first insurer to rule out any involvement in the deep sea mining industry. In its new policy on underwriting mineral projects, Swiss Rain says it does not support activities that retrieve minerals from the deep seabed. This is based on key sustainability risks identified for the sector. One of the opponents of the fledging and controversial industry is the deep sea mining campaign. Its finance advocacy officer, Andy Whitmore, says Swiss Ray joins several banks that have said they will not provide finance for deep sea projects. Financiers in general are concerned around deep sea mining. I mean, effectively, it's potentially a reputational risk because of the, the dangers involved in it, but it's also a financial risk. You know, it's, it's a deeply financial risk simply because the figures in terms of whether it would be profitable or not, they just are, are known. And the, the dangers that are involved in it, in terms of just not particularly understanding what the uh, what's down there, in terms of the deep sea, what the consequences of mining are going to be, you know, these are big risks. I think for the insurance industry in particular, they are the, the industry you know, that deal with risk. So I think for them, you know, they're the ones that, I think more than anyone else, you know, have uh, are going to run the greatest risks. So I think it's very important that they're waking up to this now. I mean, it's a relatively new industry. You know, it's a small industry, so it's uh, a lot of them have necessarily come into contact. So I think it's um, particularly telling that we have you know, large insurance companies uh, already, you know, basically preemptively saying they won't touch deep sea mining. The organisation you're a part of, you're against deep sea mining. How significant is this development in uh, your campaign to prevent this practice from starting up? I think it's very significant. Um, I mean, significant because it's opened up a whole new area in terms of uh, concern around financiers. But I think also it's important that you know, the first company that's uh, basically come up with a policy uh, excluding deep sea mining, that first insurer, you know, that insurer is also a reinsurer. So basically, the insurance industry works so that they try and spread risk. So there are certain key and larger firms who deal with reinsurance. So effectively, they're insuring the insurance industry. Um, and Swiss Ray is a reinsurer. 
So effectively, what's happening is you have someone who is the backstop for risk saying that we don't want to deal with this. So I think that's, you know, that's hugely significant. It means that, you know, it definitely limits the options in terms of where the deep sea mining industry, you know, potential deep sea miners can go to get their insurance. You mentioned before that around 10 or so major financiers, banks have uh, said they're not going to touch deep sea mining. How much of an impact has that made the business of getting finance by potential deep sea miners? Has it had an impact yet? I think it's had uh, an impact in terms of people understanding that there's a level of risk involved. So it has a, you know, it has an impact in terms of, of people realizing financiers are waking up to it. In some ways, it probably hasn't had an instant, you know, an actual practical impact because, as mentioned, most of these are large financial institutions. So they're the likes of Credit Suisse, uh, NatWest, Standard Chartered. Most of these people won't have been approached for finance by deep sea mining companies because at the moment, it's still a fairly speculative industry. You know, they're raising their money from people who are more like hedge funds and people who are willing to take a higher level of risk. However, if deep sea mining is going to start, I think that's when the, the industry will really need to raise money to build the big machines that they need to do, to do in order for deep sea mining to start. So I think that's the point at which you know, it, this uh, growing number of financiers who are excluding deep sea mining, that's the point I think where it will really tell. And that's Andy Whitmore from the Deep Sea Mining Campaign speaking to Liam Fox. You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Now, many people familiar with the Pacific would associate Bougainville with the island's struggle for independence and years of conflict. Perhaps not so much as a place to source horticultural workers, but that's changing. And for the first time, a group of women from Bougainville have been employed in Australia this season. Larissa Smith has this report from Northern Tasmania. On this large-scale nursery just outside of Deloraine in the state's north, about a dozen women are working their way up and down the rows of tall blackberry canes. They're taping the canes together so they can be distributed to other farms to grow out. What's so special about this workforce is they're from Bougainville, a series of islands east of Papua New Guinea and northeast of Australia. And they're some of the first women from Bougainville to take part in the Pacific Australia Labor Mobility Scheme, also known as PALM. Team leader on this farm is Carol Neverui. It's all about you know, using our eyes and getting things done properly. As um, the team leader of the 10 girls here, the main role I do as a team leader, I usually report the end of every month to PNG LMU, Labor Mobility Unit. Yeah, so every end of the month or two weeks, I send in report how we are doing and stuff like that if we needed help, support. How have these women adjusted? I've learned to live away from home and when I came here it was just like any other time I left home to go to another um, community or something like that and also because I have a, there's a time frame for me to be here, um, like 
always calm down. So it's really okay for me. But I don't know about the other girls. It's been like four months now. And yeah, I don't really miss so much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I'm thinking of coming back if everything goes well. What would you like to spend the money on that you've earned here? I send some money back home to my parents and um, for school fees for my younger brother, the last one in the family. And I'm saving up for some some plans higher for myself. It's been a good experience for me. Hello, my name is Lilian Paisabua. I come from uh, Papua New Guinea, up in the highlands of Papua New Guinea, the coldest place in PNG, and it's uh, Inga province. As cold as here? Yep, similar to Tasmania's weather. So I've got three kids to look after. That's why I quit my job. I used to work as a logistic coordinator for Medi Papua New Guinea Institute of Medical Research. Yeah, based in Eastern Highlands, Goroka. Big change. But it's good too because I'm also a subsistence farmer. I used to work to sell food at the market, uh, farmer's market, in order to put food on the table for the kids, yeah, for the children. And what were you growing? It's just basically taro and cassavas, uh, sweet potato and uh, veggies, yeah. What do you enjoy most about being out here? It's really uh, amazing to have come this far because at first I was, uh, three of us, we were in the horticultural in, in Queensland and then we had to transfer here. Uh, we normally do veggies, uh, harvest veggies back in Queensland for the rugby farm before we travel to uh, do strawberries. And it's kind of a new field that we are getting, getting ourselves in. And we've gotten used to it already. So we've been here three months and we've got two more months before we head back home. So it's, it's uh, really a great open opportunity to be here working with, uh, you know, ladies that come from different cultural backgrounds uh, that are not same as uh, the three of us come from. How important is it that women have come out on this crew? I think it's 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 good experience for them because uh, most of them are very young and probably can't afford to pay for their school fees or could be a reason that they have to look after their old ones or maybe siblings. And this opportunity is uh, it's like a given on a golden plate. And we, 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 I would also like to thank the PNG and Australian government to go in partnership to bring this uh, program into life to give second chances to uh, unfortunate uh, ladies and women and girls and men and boys back at home to come here and earn some money to look at look after their needs and wants back at home. Yeah, and maybe yeah, go back and further their educations and all this. Thing. Some of us are thinking of going back home and talking with our uh, provincial government to, as we can, we can try and trial this program out back in the country, in the province that we come from, maybe do a partnership with the landowners, with the provincial government and all this, and maybe the, the skills that we, we acquired when, whilst here in Australia, we can try and use it back at home for the good of the country, the community, the province, and also for the country as a whole. And you know, that will be good because it's going to be, uh, we, we're going to create job opportunities, opportunities for unfortunate people who can't find job elsewhere. 
The PNG government has set a target of signing up 8,000 people for the Palm Scheme by 2025. Farm manager here at Deloraine Canes, Tim Creswell, says their current crew of Bougainvillian women have been a big asset to their workforce. Uh, well, if we couldn't access labour through Hillwood Berries, we wouldn't be able to run the uh, enterprise that we're running here because... Uh, we just can't get Australian workers just either not interested or that it's too easy to sit at home. We've tried and tried with local workers and local labour, but just no one wants a job. And specifically working on the canes? Ah, look, if we found some good people that are willing, you know, they'd get a large variety of work. It's not just so much working on the canes, like the boys that we've got here who are um, Tongan boys. You know, they, they're doing plant, plant husbandry, they're also into doing all their maintenance jobs, but... At times of year when I need them, they'll drive tractors with all our trailers when we're digging carrots and other bits and things as required. Two of our main boys, they're prison guards back home and this is their first taste of agriculture and horticulture anywhere in the world and they're loving it and they've both said that they want to go home and buy a bit of land or they love the opportunity because they don't get these opportunities back home. These, these girls are very good workers and they're very proactive. And so you'd be happy to have them back? Oh, in a heartbeat. We're very happy with all our workers that we've got from other countries, all our uh, island labour. They're here to work and they want to be here and they love it here. They All the time they say to you, we love it here, we want to stay, we want to come back. You know, So that's good for us that we know that we've been kind to them and they're enjoying being here. And that's Larissa Smith reporting from Northern Tasmania. Now, it's one of the more powerful symbols in this country. It's the flag of Indigenous Australia that has been seen on the front lines of First Nations peoples' struggle for equality for decades. But now there's a complex debate about whether it should be used in connection with another social cause. The Indigenous flag has been carried in pro-Palestine rallies, protesting against Israel's military operation in Gaza. Olympic champion, former Senator and Indigenous Australian Nova Peres declared the flag as being misappropriated by the pro-Palestine movement. Jacqueline Breen reports. In a video posted on social media, Nova Peres explains why she's speaking out. I'm saddened to see our sacred Aboriginal flag, a flag which I fought so hard to be returned to the Aboriginal community, being misappropriated by Palestinian anti-Israel and anti-Jewish groups in Australia. Nova Paris helped lead the campaign that freed the red, yellow and black flag from copyright restrictions two years ago. She says she's deeply troubled by how it's been used recently. As a proud Aboriginal person, that is our sacred flag. That is our, our identity. And, and I'm all about this free prior informed consent. So to have used the plight of my people, the blood of my ancestors, to have hijacked our identity, it has brought a foreign conflict and tensions to this country, which I love. Nova Perra says the Indigenous community has received decades of support and solidarity from Jewish Australians who fought for their rights, including in last year's unsuccessful campaign for an Indigenous voice to Parliament. I know what they have done for my people when it comes to the people of Yaron Castens, Geoffrey Schurz, and how they sat on Mother Earth, on the red soil, to hear our stories, to gain us land rights and to erase the notion of terra nullius. 
The Jewish lawyers have been there. The Jewish people have been there. Fellow prominent Yes campaigner Marcia Langdon is also troubled by this use of the flag in pro-Palestinian rallies, but also says she's horrified by the death toll in Gaza and the West Bank. Another prominent Indigenous figure, Warren Mundine, also backs Nova Peris's position. I'm 100% behind her. Uh, you know, this idea that the reasons why people are using the, the Indigenous flag, the Aboriginal, with these pro-Palestinian groups is that it's Indigenous to Indigenous is, is false. Uh, we are Indigenous people. Uh, the uh, Jewish people are Indigenous people and been a massive supporter of Aboriginal people over many gener- generations, uh, going back to William Cooper and beyond. And, uh, and uh, I think it's putting us in a position which we shouldn't be in. But there's no single view on when the Indigenous flag should or shouldn't be used. It's become a feature at pro-Palestinian rallies across the country, and the Palestinian flag was prominent at anti-Australia Day rallies held by Indigenous groups this year. Tarnine Onus-Brown organises the Melbourne March. As an Indigenous Australian, they believe there are similarities between the two causes. He was one of the most moving rallies that I've ever been a part of. But in another example, Tanin Onus-Brown was troubled by the use of the Aboriginal flag by anti-lockdown and anti-vax protesters. We do. We are in solidarity with Jewish people as well. And First Nations people have been in solidarity with Jewish people for a long time. Um, and there is a rise of anti-Semitism and we need to talk about that. But we also need to look at what is happening right now. And Palestinians are being bombarded by Israel and its government. And for me, we need to ensure that we speak up and talk about a potential genocide that is happening. And that's what um, I'm sure William Cooper would have wanted. In Australia's Jewish communities, differences have emerged publicly this week too. Nama Cullen is on the board of the newly formed Jewish Council of Australia, which, unlike other prominent Jewish community groups, is calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. Look, the Jewish community is not a monolith. Um, um, our main point is to remember um, that the truth that, that critiquing the state of Israel is not anti-Semitic. Um, and it is actually really important that we keep remembering this because otherwise we put people, critics of the Israeli state, and especially its ongoing war now in Gaza, um, in a very um, precarious situation if we stifle their descent um, uh, of of Israel's actions. And that is Indigenous rally organiser Tanin Onis-Brown ending that report by Jacqueline Breen. Now to some sports news. A historical final will play out this evening in Samoa's capital, Apia, as first-time finalists Solomon Islands take on New Zealand and the Oceania Football Confederation, or OFC, women's Olympic qualifiers. At stake is a spot at this year's Paris Olympics. But as the chief executive of Solomon Islands Football Federation, Leonard Paia, tells our Honiara News reporter, Chris Narita Almanut-Leong, Getting to the final is significant already for women's football development in the country. It's a very exciting time. Uh, we never qualify for Olympics in the past, especially for the women. And I think the way the women uh, national team is going, uh, uh, we, we witnessed over the past three years a uh, great improvement to the national senior women team. 
it only uh, uh, proves that not only in the men's national team, but we also have the potential with the, with the women. And if we invest, if we give the right investment for the women football in the country, definitely we can also uh, have better results in the future. This uh, achievement to, to, to play in the, the grand final for the Olympics, uh, this is history for our national senior women team and uh, we wish them all the best uh, against uh, New Zealand. What can you say about the level of women's football in the country so often that in Solomon Islands people know most, you know, commonly know the men's football mm. side and that's a particular sport that has dominated over the years. But what can, what does this show and tell um, the Solomon Islanders about women's football? Yeah, uh, for the women's football, uh, Batram is, is doing very well, uh, as we saw in, in, in 2022 with the OFC uh, Nations Cup in Fiji. Uh, for the first time, Solomon Islands uh, won the bronze medal uh, at, that, uh, at that level. And then in the 20, uh, after the, the OFC Women's Nations Cup in 2022 in, in Fiji, the team travels to Australia for the Pacific Ocean Sports uh, to, uh, to play against uh, Papua New Guinea and Fiji and, and uh, Matildas. And I think uh, uh, with that, that competition, Solomon Islands did very well also and came second to, to Australia. And now that uh, semi-final match against Samoa in, 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 in Apia, uh, the, the team won 2-0 and qualified for, for the final. So I think if we continue that way, we are, we are on the right track developing the, the women uh, football in the country. The National Federation, uh, over the years, uh, we have neglected the, the women football. I uh, think the work that <clears throat> been put into the women football uh, started in, back in 2020. Uh, and it's now about four years. Uh, but uh, we, we've seen, we've seen uh, the results uh, coming. We, we started the league, the Women Premier League, and, uh, and thank you uh, uh, also for the Sorise uh, company that came in to sponsor this uh, uh, national league for the women. Uh, and that, that partnership uh, uh, with the National Federation, Somalia Football Federation, we have seen uh, a lot of improvement with, with our women uh, national team. And that is because of the opportunity being given to the women to, to, to play at the National Premier League level. Uh, so if we continue to, to build on that and, and even uh, bring that development down to the youth level for the women, uh, that will, in, in, in few years' time, we will see a lot of changes to our women football. And I think uh, with the results we are getting now after four years, uh, it, it really gives us that, that uh, uh, inspiration to, to work harder and, and develop more on our women football in the country. And that was Chief Executive of Solomon Islands Football Federation, Leonard Bayer, speaking to our reporter, Chris Narita Almanuleong in Honiara. 
A turtle rehabilitation centre in the Gladstone Harbour on the central Queensland coast recently rescued a turtle that came in with a rusty nail embedded in its shell, thought to have been put there with a nail gun. While the prognosis of that turtle is still up in the air, it's great news for another turtle, which was recently released after an elaborate rescue attempt involving a crane, cage and boat. Katrina Bevan has the story. The ocean water. <laughs> Green sea turtle Moana is slowly making her way towards the ocean. She's been in a rehabilitation centre for months recovering and now it's finally time for her to return to the sea. Queen Island Turtle Rehabilitation Centre manager Kim von Alstenster says it's days like today that make the centre really worthwhile. Our success rate is 73%, which we're quite proud of. It's, it's quite up there, so uh, that's good. Yeah, So we have released 320 uh, sea turtles back into the wild so far. So Moana today is going to be number 321. Moana was found stuck in the mud in the Gladstone Harbour in July last year by employees at the Queensland Illumina Limited, or QAL, refinery. After workers checked the camera footage, they realised she'd been there a while. Seeking advice from the Queen Island team, they were advised to get her out. But being at the bottom of a three-metre rock wall in deep, slippery mud, an elaborate rescue attempt was born, involving a crane, cage and boat. Here's QAL employee Corey Bruton. Yeah, the call comes through from our um, leader, Neil Sykes, asked if uh, we could organise some planks so we can safely get out to the turtle. As we got the planks down there and we all arrived. The plan was to organise a shift crane operator to come down with a certified lifting basket to lift down to the turtle and safely put her onto the cage and then move her over into the boat. When she was assessed, it was clear she had soft shell syndrome. So on average, our turtles stay in care for about 77 days um, and she has been in care with us for 165 yeah, so a little bit longer, a little bit more expensive turtle uh, than uh, than the other ones. But yeah, she's super strong and active, and her, her uh, shell is uh, has been hardening up, and she's ready to go. She's been pacing the edge of the pool. That's generally when they uh, when they can show us like that they're, that they're ready to go. They want out. Yeah. She was recently released, marking another success story for the centre. Though Moana's story has a happy ending, that's not always the case. Kim says she and staff were heartbroken recently when fellow green sea turtle Midori came into their care with some severe injuries. So Midori uh, was found in the Calliope uh, River, just uh, like in the, in, the, in the river mouth, and uh, she'd been floating. Um, yeah, so the finder called her and pulled her into the, into the boat, and um, she was in really poor condition because she already had um, boat strikes that had been healing, uh, but still quite some holes in it with uh, a heavy parasite load in, in there as well. Then um, when we started cleaning that um, th- those wounds up, actually noticed um, a, a skin tag. It looked like a skin tag. It was completely like in the, in the turtle, and when we pulled it out, it was actually a five centimeter uh, nail like a rusty nail that had been shot in uh, with a, with a nail gun. Um, so, yeah, and that's like right in the area where her lungs sit as well. She's, so she's got a really bad infection. Her prognosis is still very poor. We don't know if she's, uh, she's going to make it. She's um, 
pretty lethargic, doesn't move around uh, much, and she's still sitting on top of the water. And uh, she's been on an extended course of antibiotics. We've done some salomosynthesis, trying to take um, the the air out, and yeah, no real uh, response to the treatment um, um, just yet. So yeah, we're keeping all flippers crossed, and we're giving her all the TLC that we can uh, get. And yeah, lots of care, and hopefully she's gonna pull through. The team suspects the nail was embedded with a nail gun. It would have had so much force like going in, so uh, you can't just do that with a, a hammer and a, and a nail uh, because the turtle would have been swimming around um, and the turtle's not sitting still. So it's pretty uh, heartbreaking that somebody would do something uh, like that to a turtle. We just quite can't quite comprehend why somebody would do such a thing. While the team continues to look after Midori and several other turtles in care, they're also reminding Bodies, beachgoers and coastal residents to be mindful with turtle nesting and hatchling season underway. When you're out on the water, just go slow. And also when you're walking on the beach and you see um, um, a turtle uh, emerging from the water to go uh, nest, keep your distance like they they really react to to movement if it's uh, at night just don't shine your torches on it uh, because you, the turtle will just turn around and go back uh, in the water and the same goes for the hatchlings like the hatchlings need that glow on the horizon to find their way um, to the beach and there's been so many reports of, of hatchlings going the wrong direction because people keep their lights on at night and um, and they go the wrong direction and then uh, don't actually make it into the ocean yeah so when we just switch our lights off at night and just be mindful of that. They just go into the, the right direction, the ocean where they're meant to be, to be going to. And that's Katrina Bevan with that report there. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat. We could not bring you the latest on the motion of no confidence against Vanuatu's Prime Minister, but let's hope we can bring you that story tomorrow. Head to ABC Pacific page. Uh, you can hear us again this afternoon at 5pm PNG time. But I'll be back same time tomorrow at 6am PNG time. ABC Radio Australia, though, you've got news next. Coming up after that is Nisha Daily. Until then, follow us on Facebook at ABC Pacific. I'm Aggie Dubow and you've been tuning into Pacific Beat.